You are listening to the Evolution Exchange podcast, a platform we've created to bring the Nordic tech community together. My name is Charlotte Roberts and I'm your host. Perfect. So first of all, I just want to say a big thank you to everyone for joining us today. Um, Of course, we're going to be discussing learnings from building a startup in the AI space. Um, So before we begin, I'd like to everyone just to go around, give a quick introduction to themselves. Um, So that would be great. If firstly, if um, Anna, if you'd like to start us off, that would be wonderful. Sure, uh, I'm happy to start off. Uh, so my name is Anna. Uh, I am the co-founder and the CEO of Lake Analytics. So Lake is an uh, API solution that matches uh, candidates to jobs using machine learning. Uh, we are automating the screening and search process by highlighting uh, the most relevant candidates given a specific job. So the solution solution can be applied to both incoming candidates or to an entire database, and um, and the solution is integrated to to the customer's current system directly. Um, so that's short about uh, Lake Analytics. But uh, about me, then uh, I have a background from the IT and consulting industry, uh, and I've been running one company before starting Lake Analytics. Uh, Lake is quite a, a result uh, from from my previous company. Uh, and I'd say that my yeah my private life and my professional life I think uh, it's overlap quite a lot um, as my company and what I'm doing is my my biggest uh, hobby and interest. Um, yeah, I strongly disagree with people to say that you you can't have your like your job as your hobby because uh, I do. But um, yeah, that's that's me. No, I love that, and I, I mean. I think most people, you know, will work five days a week. So it makes sense if you love if you love your job, then you don't feel like you're working, do you? So thank you very much for that introduction. If Matthias, if you'd like to go next, that'd be lovely. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Matthias and uh, I have actually a big background within HR from the beginning. So so during the uh, I've been in the staffing agencies, recruitment agencies, but uh, after that I tried and had a couple of failures and some minor success with uh, companies before that I started. Or uh, So now I'm working at Syndata as a co-founder and a CEO. And what we do is that we synthesize structured data in order to lift the regulatory frameworks from that data, uh, such as uh, GDPR, for example. So you can then have all the analytic analytical value from that data but you can also do whatever you want with it since it's your data and doesn't contain any identifiable information uh, with that we also create an evaluation framework around that to so we can build trust for the synthetic data set so that is what's in data and i am working uh, also a hobby for me Love that. Thank you very much for that detail um, and in, on introduction. Uh, Theo, if you'd like to go next, that'd be lovely. Sure. Uh, first of all, uh, great to be here. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. I'm super excited to to hear about all the all the good discussions that we will have. But just briefly on me, so I'm I'm a serial entrepreneur. I started. Uh, this is actually my sixth uh, company. I sold uh, five uh, five before, and one is actually listed at Nasdaq, which is kind of interesting because doing the journey from from one uh, or four people to to full scale, it's uh, you know it's it's a fun ride, and you learn a lot in that in that journey. But uh, always focusing on emerging technologies, 
So when uh, when people thought that e-commerce was on the rise '96, I was on that uh, uh, I was on that uh, uh, wave, so to say. So so a lot of technology. I'm I'm not an engineer. I'm a I'm a business person. Uh, obviously, love to to build uh, you know companies and business models and products and and offerings, whatever. Uh, and currently, uh, I'm the CEO and co-founder of Turbotic. And the easiest way to explain what we do is to make the analogy with uh, self-driving cars. So, I mean, 15 years or 10 years ago, you had you had GPS in the cars, you had sensors, you had cameras, but what what you didn't have was uh, a kind of a system keeping it all together, right, and collecting all the data and making it more intelligent. And we try to do exactly the same thing, but for companies. So our aim is to put an operating system uh, into the companies to be basically self-driving by connecting a lot of technologies. So that's that's what we do, and it's very much deep tech. It's a very much engineering challenge that we are up to, and and we are also trying to create kind of a new category, basically. So. So uh, yeah, I mean, we, we just started a year back and, and we've accomplished a lot already, but uh, I, I would assume that we have another 10 years down the road to, to just building the company. Definitely, here's hoping. Thank you very much for that introduction and I, I can second that as well. I think um, today's discussion is gonna be really interesting, especially with everyone that we've got involved and that sort of thing. Um, so last but certainly not least, Ather, if you'd like to give your introduction, that'd be lovely. Thank you, Charlotte, for having me on the podcast and great to be uh, with uh, great uh, people here in this episode. Uh, so I'm founder of uh, three uh, companies where I'm active with two of them. Uh, one of them is Aabetic, which is helping people with diabetes to uh, predict and uh, also act on uh, their glucose uh, level in the blood in order to uh, basically live a normal life. And we do that with the help of artificial intelligence. The other company is Organize, which is basically building a digital assistant. It's like having a secretary in your pocket. That's uh, uh, basically what the company is about, but I'm also um, a head of research at AI Sweden part-time because I think it's very important uh, for me to uh, keep track of the most recent developments in artificial intelligence. And I really enjoy, you know, working with, uh, you know, young talents uh, coming up with the next big thing, uh, hopefully. But, you know, start by playing with the uh, uh smaller problems and my hobbies are going to the gym swimming uh, i've been dancing salsa for over uh, 10 years uh, and of course uh, ai is probably my uh, biggest uh, hobby nice i love that you could definitely give me a lesson in dancing because i'm awful <laughs> <laughs> you bet <laughs> oh lovely thank you very much everyone for your uh, for your introductions um we'll go ahead and jump right into the questions now um so the first question is from other um, and it makes perfect sense to start with this one as it's uh, regarding planning and you know you we have to plan first don't we so how to plan for the process of ai implementation starting from the product um so other if you'd like to give a bit of background behind this question and then i'll go ahead and open it up to the group yeah, so um, AI is definitely game-changing technology, 
and it's uh, uh, really having a great impact. We've seen uh, smaller uh, startups and fintech companies, you know, really challenging uh, uh, bigger uh, uh, players. And if any player, uh, whether it's a big company or a smaller company, not really uh, starting on implementing and using uh, AI, uh, they will probably uh, more or less uh, vanish. Um, so this is very important. On the other hand, uh, AI is known to be an expensive technology. There is scarce of uh, uh, resources when it comes to competence. Uh, it's fairly new, uh, which is uh, partially, I think, why Turbotic is uh, uh, is actually uh, been founded, what I understand. Uh, so even like the processes uh, around AI uh, uh, are not really um, well understood and fairly complex. Um, there is also this gap between people that know the technology and the business people. Uh, how do you actually get people to communicate and talk to each other uh, in order really to build uh, the right product. Uh, so finding the right competence, building the right team, having the right processes. So this is really behind the, uh, the question. And I'm not sure if there is an answer, but I think there are experiences, hopefully that have been positive that uh, people can share. I'll go ahead and open that up to the group. Anna, did you want to start? Uh, yeah, I can, yeah, I can start to, um, yeah, my, uh, my experience, I mean, I don't have a great experience from this, but uh, my experience is that I think the key to, to this sort of challenge or problem is to ask for everyone to start small and focus on solving like one niche problem and serve one purpose. Uh, rather than trying to do everything at once, because you know that's that's a common common problem. Um, but I think from start, I mean, since uh, since start, I've been keeping the kind of the uh, MVP mindset all the way, and I think it it helps a lot in in developing our products and uh, onboarding our customers as well, because. I always wanted to be sort of um, understandable and uh, manageable. And if you go too big and if you think too big, if you try to communicate this uh, vision uh, and if you sort of picture it too big, then it won't be easy for anyone to jump on the road so uh, or jump on the train. So I think um, keeping it small has been key for us. And that's kind of a mindset that I'd like to keep all the way. Um, so that that's my opinion or like my experience so far, I would say. Um, I don't know if anyone would like to add something to that. Um, but again, I think it's quite common to to reason like that. I, I fully agree with that focus is is a, is a main thing here to be to be transparent and very clear of what you what you solve and what you um, can offer. Uh, but we what I have experienced is also is we need to help the persons that want to try this technology to have the strength to turn around and tell legal to tell uh, in, uh, tell all the departments that will be involved to that they want to do that. Uh, so what we we tried this that we have we synthesize data and that is personal data so that it's a complex process before we can actually do the handling of that data due to the GDPR. So what we did, what a company was that we take, took their data, how it looked, made fake data out of that, 
synthesized that and made a report for our spokesperson within the organization so he can turn around and show what he actually could do with our technology. Um, So so if you can do that in somehow help your spokesperson within that organization to not only, but also to feel the strength to turn around and say, oh, I want to do this. Uh, That's a good way to do it as well. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can jump in and and I mean uh, share my opinion. I think it's a very valid uh, question. I think it's not only the startup struggling with this. I even I mean I, I work with Ericsson and, and built up their enterprise AI unit uh, a few years back, and 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 the whole. I mean, the, all companies are struggling with this, right? And I, I second Anna there saying, you know, start small and and scale from there. But I think it's another angle to it, and that also ties in a bit to the, you know, how what value, how how do we show value of it in most. I would say nine out of ten uh, um, times when when I have heard people talking about you know making an AI use case, they they first kind of identify uh, a, a problem or a solution, and then they try to solve it with with AI instead of looking what data do we have that can so- solve a potential problem and walk that path because that is really the path you should do. Unless you have the data, you can really not. I mean, you you cannot solve the problem, right? So, and and I I would en- en- encourage everyone to first start with the data. What data do we have, and what problem can we solve with that, and build the use cases from that rather than the opposite. Yeah, and I and I agree with you. And uh, we've been doing the similar thing. Like before we onboard a customer or before we start any kind of integration, we always start off with a business case. And the business case is plainly like based on. I mean, we presented on a paper basically. Uh, so we are putting our algorithm on the job, but we are not doing anything together with the client. And then we pass over the results and we explain to them this is what it can do and this is how we can facilitate the processes for you. Uh, after showing them these kind of results and walking them through the results, uh, it's much easier for us to sort of, you know, get get attention from the from the company and from the management team and to move on from there. So that's uh, definitely a good way to go. But I, and I also think that a lot of, I mean, to be honest, a lot of a lot of the AI that we try to to do or ML, whatever we want to call it, right? I think we, we share the same kind of uh, terminology here. But uh, but a lot of the AI we want to do, you know, they it's pure research. We we have to invent it from the very start. And 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 I think you know from what I've seen that we we have kind of we have cracked the model of doing good research project. But what we still haven't really cracked is how do we how do we industrialize that. And we can see some e-commerce, uh, you know, tech companies, some fintech companies, they're starting to industrialize this. But overall, we are not there, even though we have off-the-shelf models and we have, uh, uh, you know, AI editors and whatever. So I would say we, we're fairly good uh, good in, in doing a research product, but, but yet a lot of to learn how to scale it and industrialize it. Ada, did you have anything else to sort of add to that before we move on? Well, uh, it's really interesting to hear uh, everybody's input here. And uh, I would say that uh, I agree with uh, what they're saying. And uh, there are multiple dimensions there. I mean, there is the... uh, 
the dimension also how to build a team, uh, how uh, now Theo were mentioning looking at the data and uh, it could be that uh, a lot of uh, data scientists, they could be, you know, very, uh, you know, ac you know, intelligent and excellent at what they do but when it comes to the business case that's maybe where it's not that easy to find that kind of person you know there is a term uh, that's called uh, data translators that have emerged which is basically people that are business minded that really understand at least in principle what you can do with uh, machine learning and how you can use the data and find the uh, business and actually you can see there is a lot of uh, problems that could uh, come up there because there are a lot, there are a lot of you know managers typically that expect the data scientist or the machine learning engineer to be business minded and it turns out like they are expecting that person to do magic and uh, mm. this is also uh, i think uh, a misconception uh, it's a dialogue. Uh, you cannot expect that person to be business-minded. Actually, not a lot of people in the world are business-minded, whether they're data scientists or not. Uh, so it requires really that you work together as a team to learn to speak uh, each other's uh, language. So that's a dimension that I think uh, is often sidestepped. Uh, I have uh, seen it many times where uh, you know, managers hire um, machine learning engineers and they're basically expecting to build a product. So they don't have a product. It's almost like you have a startup, they hire someone and they want them to come up with a product. But no, that's actually the, uh, the founder's job to have a, a clear idea of what the product is with clear specifications. Uh, so because now we're talking about startups and I've seen that uh, there are uh, very good uh, founders that are excellent uh, salespersons, but maybe they are not uh, that good uh, product persons and just believe that by hiring someone, the magic just happens with the data. Mm. That, that, that's but I, I think I think that is new, not new for data scientists. I mean, we had it for 50 years ago. It was the engineers that didn't know how to the business side and, and artists and craftsmen. And, and so I agree, it's not a new phenomenon that we need a team to make it work. Um, Yet it's still uh, uh, lagging what I see. But I, I think you have a really in interesting point there, Anther. Uh, the, the way we solve it, I mean, we have product owners for our opera operating system, right? So we have different modules and, and you know, different features and, you know, different vendors that we work with. But we also have a separate product, you know, which is the AI product. <laughs> so we treat that as a separate product in the product, so to say. And, and, and that is to, to really combine the, the best of two worlds, you know, people who know the product and the market and the, the, the buyers, and then also someone who really knows the, 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 the AI product within that, so to say. So that is our, our, our way of, of kind of solving it. But I think it's a really interesting angle you have there, Anthony. Lovely. Thank you very much. I think we've um, had some great answers for that one. Um, unless anyone else has got anything else to add, I'll move on to the next question. Perfect. So the next question then, it's from Theo. Um, so Theo's question is, how did you get your first customers? 
so Theo, if you'd like to give a bit of background behind that, um, your question, why you'd like to answer that sort of thing, and then we'll open it up to the group. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the, the reason why I ask, I mean, it's quite obvious, right? Because I, I'm not sure if you are on an international market, but but we are. And and uh, as such, we, you know, we want to build a global product. We want to scale beyond the Nordics. And for me, it's, I mean, here we have all the connections. We have the low-hanging fruits. We have the friends and the family. We can take the meetings. We can get the first handful, maybe, you know, the first 10 uh, customers, right? Fairly fairly easy, I would say, just based on that. But how, I mean, it's it's a, a everything include, you know, everything including AI is a complex product. It's complex to sell. It's complex to, you know, to to uh, position yourself in, in a, you know, growing landscape. So how, you know, how, how to move beyond that? How to move beyond the first 10 friends and family customers? What's your experience on that? Uh, so yeah, I can I can start off. Uh, you know, I haven't been <laughs> haven't been in the game as long as you, Theo. Uh, but um, so my experience is still on the you know first ten family and friends, net, your network customers. So um, that's like what I can tell from this uh, from this question. But uh, I think uh, my my experience being in an early stage still. Uh, is that as soon as we decided to to build the lake and to develop this uh, product and company, uh, I started to do the research and cold calling like straight away because um, I wanted to see the interest in the product. Uh, is there uh, any other solutions out there uh, that company are actually using? And by doing so, I mean, I was just calling and calling for you know a few days and by doing so I just realized the the potential in the in the problem that we're solving, the potential in the product. Um, and I also figured that there is uh, a potential scalability in this. Uh, but even though I realized that, you know, you have to start start small, start where you stand, of course. Um, but um, that way we got uh, we got a few clients uh, to to jump uh, on board straight away just by listening to the the product that we were about to develop. So I think you don't even like you don't always, of course, have to have something to offer straight away. So I sort of sold the vision, and they they said that okay, we're on, and they wanted to be a part of the process all the way or like from start. So they've been highly involved. Uh, in the process, in the development process, and in our journey. So, uh, and I think that's great for different reasons, of course, for the feedback and all the help that we get from them. I mean, that's uh, super valuable. Uh, but also in terms of, you know, networking, if they are aware of the product, they're aware of what we're doing, they're starting to talk about it, and they are talking to other companies in the industry and so on. So, uh, out of nowhere, we have other, like 10 other companies contacting us and, you know, wondering what are you doing really and is this something for us etc so i think word of mouth always really plays its role and uh, i think we gain a lot from from that so even though you don't have anything in place and i'm sure that you are 100 aware of this but uh, even though you have don't have a product in place it's good to start talking about it and just get that get the word out there um that, that helped us a lot and don't be afraid of doing so because you know there is no wind to sit on hold back on your idea on your thoughts so get it out there no, I, I i agree on that that i mean it will take time for the companies anyway and and when they have done their process you a lot further uh, on in the process what, what we have done with our first customers is 
ask them to be a part of our megaphone later. So, okay, we will do this for you, but then, and we will do this maybe as a POC or POC price or whatever, but we also put some demands on you. And that is that we, you will be part of a webinar or you, we can use your case to describe it and what we solve for you. Uh, so, so don't basically don't be afraid to put demands on your clients that, okay, if we have sold something for you, let us help us use that information and, and spread it on. Totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I agree with both Anna and Matthias and I'm uh, pretty certain that I, uh, I won't say anything that you say or don't know. Uh, that's for sure, uh, because what I'm kind of come up with is probably also like classical uh, tricks. Uh, I mean, I know that your product is B2B because there are different approaches, of course, between B2B and B2C. Um, but uh, maybe, I don't know, I'm not sure. There are two modern tricks nowadays. Uh, of course, you're aware of them, but actually I'm not sure if uh, Turbotic are applying them today. One way, because uh, if I would um, go back to what Anna said about word of mouth, a freemium version where uh, your customers can try for free and then pay for additional functionalities when they see the magic of your product, get to try it. Uh, you know, like Slack, for instance, been, you know, for a long time, they even didn't even know how to monetize it. It took a long time. So a freemium version somehow where you uh, feel like eventually they would like to buy more, you know, like, you know, Snowflake, it's uh, they have retention over 100 percent. Once the customers uh, start, start to buy their products, they want to buy uh, more. Uh, I think the same goes for one of your partners, UiPath. They have the same, uh, you know, amazing retention over 100%. That's uh, unheard of. Uh, I think a free version could uh, probably help. Um, I'm not saying that is all new to you. And there is also uh, uh, what I feel many tech companies uh, do not want to uh, spend uh, money and effort on still is having really an unbeatable UI and UX. It's all about user experience. And, uh, uh, you know, spending a lot of time and effort, even on the design, it looks good. Small things, small, small things. Uh, it could be even that you start to think about gamification. How can it be to be even more fun to use your product? So you really uh, uh, be a bit different. I think that could also uh, help with the uh, spread of mouth uh, trick. And at the end of the day, I think also you need a lot of uh, excellent packaging to do the right marketing and, and say it's like, uh, again, uh, what, what Anna said, I think a one-liner, can, can, can you in a way express uh, your product in one line? So companies, for instance, Snowflake, people say, oh, you really can handle uh, lots of data uh, in 10 seconds uh, that typically could take uh, more than 10 minutes. I mean, this is a great line to uh, spread around. Small tricks, but I think it, uh, it makes a difference. 
that's great. That's some great insights. I mean, we someone said. Uh, I mean, I guess you all, all heard about founder sales and 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 you know doing that. And and someone said that mentioning a UI path that they, they shoehorned in the first two hundred customers, which means that there are no process. There are no uh, systematic approach to 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 getting uh, you know the the customers the customers through the door for the first two hundred. And for me, that's a hefty number. It's a lot of it's a lot of shoestring. It's a lot of shoehorning, uh, and, and I guess we, you know, that that's uh, that's where we are. But I think also listeners here maybe wonder how do you do beyond the, the five, the first five, and and as you say, Matthias, we we actually try to do as uh, quite much with uh, with uh, with the beta customers and, and and new customers and also the the tech vendors and the tech partners that we have, and that that gave us a lot. So that I can definitely. Uh, you know, tell everyone to to partner up with with the customers and to uh, with, with with other partners as well, and to do webinars or you know white papers, whatever. That that's a really strong things for us. Definitely, I think there's been some really really great answers there. Does anyone else have anything else to add add to that uh, before we move on to sort of the next next question? Nope. No, well, yes, just that. Well, talking with a company as an example, and they are standing on the side with you, it gives them a feeling a little bit of, oh, we got to jump on on this train. Um, and if I don't have the answer how to create that feeling with with the, with the, your non-customers, but so so if you find that key, call me. <laughs> No, definitely. Well, um, I'll move on to the um, to the next question now. Uh, so this question is from Anna. So Anna's question is, what are some of the main challenges starting a company in the AI space? So Anna, if you'd like to um, give a bit of background as to why you want to ask this question or why you think it's important to answer it, and then I'll let everyone jump in. Sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, there there isn't much of a background to to this question. To be honest, it's more like you know there are always there is always um, challenges, uh, high and low, and uh, I have uh, quite a lot of them. Uh, so it's always you know nice to share them because then you can sort of solve some problems together. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, one one thing that I this is not new to anyone really, anyone that has been working with. IT projects in, in some sense, but it's always difficult to estimate the time and resources needed to get a market product or like a market ready product uh, out there. Uh, I mean, th this is difficult for everyone and you sort of never get on time with anything. Um, so I think this is definitely one that you can learn a lot from. And I mean, it's the valuable thing here is that you can learn from others, like you can learn from others' mistakes uh, and all that. But uh, I mean, how much you you try to uh, no matter how much you try to to do a fair estimate you you seem to fail a little bit uh, but um, yeah that's one definitely one challenge I think and the other one is um, we talked a lot like we we touched it a little bit uh, before but since we're still in a phase where we seem to talk way more about AI than we're actually using it uh, it can be challenging to sell uh, to sell to sell. Because uh, everyone, I mean, like all organiza organizations seem to have uh, a great interest in AI and a great interest in applying it in its organizations, but we're still quite far from actually doing it. 
Um, and I think that's, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised by that challenge, but it's still interesting to figure out ways to sort of get organizations on board um, without, you know, asking for too much. So I'm happy to put that one out there to, to hear your experiences on that or ideas on that. Am I boring if I say recruitment is my main challenge within the AI spectrum? You can Absolutely hit me with no. a no, it, it, it was my first bullet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so today's uh, recruitment, uh, hopefully on Tuesday, I, I've closed a couple of them. So then it will be another problem. <laughs> but um, I, I would also say that, that uh, talking to the customer and on the, we were into that. I don't remember. I think yeah, I don't remember who it was, but selling a vision, but also making it clear that we're not magi magi magicians and we need to have you on board for this project to develop the final product together. And, and that might take you a little bit longer, but to be that transparent and not trying to oversell uh, what the, at least not maybe the product, but not the process. I think that that is what I've learned that it's much easier totally in, in whole if you're just transparent about the process they need to be involved in. Yeah, I have to second that. So, of course, recruitment that was really uh, on top uh, of my list. And again, uh, being uh, technical, but also business minded, and especially if you're a startup. Uh, you most likely maybe you don't afford both. You would like to have uh, a, a person that is technical but business minded at the same time, which really narrows uh, your options uh, quite a lot. And uh, uh, but I think also there is some kind of burden now. There's uh, still uh, many companies that claim that they do some kind of uh, AI stuff, uh, we saw a report, I think a year ago or so, that 40% of European uh, companies that were claiming they're doing AI, they were not actually, uh, which uh, I, I think now there is an extra burden to uh, really demonstrate somehow that you're actually using something uh, that has to do with AI and that's why, uh, or it could be, it's not necessarily, but it could be that you're doing something. I think that's also uh, something worthwhile considering. Uh, Charlotte, you will hate me for this, but I, I will I will challenge all of you, or not all of you, but yet an answer on on the recruitment because I I think the opposite. I think it's easy to find people, but it's hard <laughs> to find people in Sweden. That's really hard. But if you if you want to go, I mean, we, we decided early to build our whole AI team based on two pillars. One, the gig economy and two, India. And we, we, we managed to get people who has been working with AI for 20 years for one third of the cost if, if we hire here. So, I mean, but, but it's, it's a different game doing that. And, and you have to be aware what you do and, and have a structure doing that. But you can potentially be extremely successful and, and, and tap into really top talent doing that. Uh, th that for me is not the, the, biggest, uh, the, the biggest challenge. For me, the biggest challenge is the hype and the expectations that comes with the hype. 
on on the other hand, you can attract investors and partners and 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 you know a, a lot of uh, you know a lot of good stuff. But the hype around it also with, with expectations, you have always be con to be conscious about that and and to understand that what can I deliver in this you know in this AI domain? What can mm -hmm. I actually do? That that's for me. That's my my biggest. On the other hand, it's it's pretty easy with small things to 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 get the wow factor. So. I mean, again, if you start small and start scaling and show the 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 the, the small good stuff in, in, instead of trying to, you know, sh say you should change the world, you know, the 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 world economy or the sustainability for you know the the challenge of the world with AI. For me, that that is a bit bogus. But if you say, hey, I can help you good, make a really good recommendation on your product or whatever, it's a built-in AI. That is for for me at least the the, the right the right way to go. Yeah, I think uh, Theo, you think it's easy to to hire because you're using Lake Analytics tool, aren't you? No. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's why it's easy. Um, but I agree with you uh, on the fact that AI is so misused. Like, um, I, I rarely use it anymore, to be honest, because uh, I feel exactly the same way. So when we talk about AI with our potential customers and also existing customers. They get the idea that we will build some sort of spaceship for them, and that's you know it's super unrealistic. So, like the thing that I've been super clear about to my team is that put expectations on a super like I don't know low, not low level, but realistic level. Like talk to them as in this is exactly what we're going to do here. This is the process that we are going to help you with, but don't do the AI and ML talk because you know that makes people believe that you are building something sick for them that you know and and that's we're not doing ourselves a favor when when uh, talking in that way sort of so i i definitely agree with you something but, i learned but, but but we are building a spaceship for them oh, but you do okay right? cool. but but it would take time it would take time <laughs> for sure. yeah and that's the thing but as long as they are aware of that then that's fine exactly mm -hmm. exactly yeah i think uh the magic with AI, I mean, when you really succeed, it's when you don't notice it. And you see a lot of, a lot of uh, great products and really efficient that we use that you probably don't uh, think of. These are the products that actually are based on uh, AI. So uh, for me, it's a lot of, about user experience. That's what AI is. A great experience where you don't need to think about what's behind it. I agree. That's a good point. Absolutely, yeah. And, and there, maybe you touched the other side of, of my question is that how transparent do you need to be? What about what really happens? Because somehow they really have to understand that. <laughs> and also for our product, where the individual have a right of the to understand or know what the handling of their personal information is. <laughs> how do we make that clear? What happens in 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 our algorithms, I don't know if I jumped into my question now, but uh, I think it was did. a little bit touched. Yeah. Uh, yeah so, I, so actually, both. I mean, uh, again, some uh, uh, founder and co-founder of two companies. Both are B two C, and both rely heavily on personal data. And uh, my recommendation is that to be very clear, very transparent, upfront, uh, following all the regulations that are there and even more full transparency if you really generate value for the uh, user uh, 
then they will agree. I mean, it's as simple as that. Uh, there is there is no point in hiding it. So we really try to comply to the fullest uh, with yeah. full transparency. And uh, we hope that we are creating uh, a product that is helping the uh, user uh, so much that they're really willing to share their data. But the problem is that we have a B2B business that we help them use their customer data, uh, private person data. So they need to be able to explain what happens. Um, and, and I'm a little bit, with you, we are very transparent. We actually also had in one project just shooted all our algorithms to them, uh, just so they can see what, what really happens because um, they, it's a big company. If they would like to do what we are doing, they can put 10 guys and be there in a year. That won't happen anyway. And if they would take the algorithms, that would be absolute uh, obsolete in, in a few months anyway. Uh, so they will, I, I'm not afraid of anybody stealing the code anyway. So we have been choosing like the very transparent way and but so here is the algorithms. Have a look mm. at them if you want. Uh, because they need to explain first internally so their risk adversive persons uh, can say yes to this process and also then explain if somebody asks them what happens in, with my personal data when you do this synthesization, they can ex explain it fully. Yeah, I'm not sure if you really have to uh, show your algorithms to uh, your uh, customer that is a company. Uh, you can, I mean, if you look at the regulations, it's really about explaining that you uh, to the so the company, your customer, explain to their customers, the uh, the users, that uh, they are uh, basically uh, treating the data somehow, and it's built on algorithms, and this is what they need the compliance for. Um, what they what you probably need to show that the quality of your algorithms is what you say they are and the only way to do it is that you do uh, a b testing uh, in a way you know in a protected environment that doesn't affect their uh, business uh, so that that's uh, i think that's the way uh, to go in my opinion I think um, to start with, this is a, a very relevant and good question, and it's something that we have been discussing a number of times internally. Uh, but since we are offering a, a match, like this is what we are doing and how we are handling it, uh, since we are offering this matching solution, it's very important to us to be able to sort of demonstrate the results that our ML uh, model uh, generates. So if we can explain why our model uh, act in a certain way or make make like certain decisions, uh, it's easier for us to build trust with our customers. And I think this this has been a really successful like sort of move from our side. Um, so because then now uh, these days we only have to explain once or twice to our customers like this is this is how it acts, and we can point to exactly why it's moving in a certain way. And then it makes them, yeah, quite comfortable and they feel safe and they're like, okay, as long as you can tell us why it's acting like this, then we're fine. 
then it doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be 100%. Uh, it can be 95%, but then I understand. Uh, I mean, the opposite would be to have this black box solution where we just say like, okay, this is the result. We don't know why, but uh, there you go. Um, we wouldn't be able to build trust that way. So uh, I think this has been uh, a great way forward for us at least. Yeah, I mean, we, we don't really have the problem of personal data, but we have another challenge, which is uh, the security. Uh, I mean, whatever corporate data goes into our, our big engine, we don't have one algorithm, but a full system. And we get obviously a lot of questions about security. And, and our our way of tackling this is, is not being uh, fully transparent, even though, though I wouldn't have any problem with that, but rather saying, you know, we work with Microsoft and they helped us do the architecture of this and we, we aim at having a military class uh, security level on our uh, cloud. Uh, and, and if we say that, then we can show that everyone is super happy with that. So there are other ways because my uh, I have been in, in customer meetings where, where customers ask us, you know, how, how, how did you solve, how, how did you come to that recommendation of using this technology? What, what's behind this? What, what does the algorithm look like? And they don't even know what an algorithm is, right? And, and they have more questions about that than the, you know, hey, does this uh, recommendation is, is that this recommendation good or not? So for me, sometimes it, it only opens up a discussion that you maybe don't want to have. But obviously if you are, if you are like, like, like we are, Matthias, in, on an enterprise B2B, you have to be transparent enough and I wouldn't be, I totally agree with you, it's, it's not always in the algorithm and I, I would recommend also to be transparent with that because it's all, everything is in execution anyway. So, I mean, the way yeah. you package, the way you price, the way you put together a convenient value prop, that, that is what they pay for, not the algorithm anyway. So, I'm thinking you're doing totally right. <clears throat> Uh, but but also I would say we are a little bit in the starting phase, so, and it's GDPR data, and everybody's like, and from Shrems two, everybody like, oh, do we really really want to touch this at all? Yeah. And on the side, there is some risk aversive lawyers that get a slap on their fingers if they say yes and it's wrong, but never no if they say no. So, so we need to be, I think, in a year or two when this is a. a this technology is a commodity we everybody will okay let's synthesize it because nobody will think about it uh that way now it's it's starting to emerging and it's a little bit unclear what it is and what it can solve and and uh, etc so i think that is the starting phase for us to really need to show everything in detail and we decided okay let's do that uh, if we show everything um they believe they feel more secure because we are showing everything but but Panthias, would you say that 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 the customers really know what they are asking for because sometimes i feel they they are not they they throw out the question there just to see what the answer is and and you know a, a reply to that could be what would make you comfortable with you know what, how 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 do you want it to be yeah, and what, we have another issue there about showing the, the, the algorithms and, and, and actually pushing them it to them is that we want to avoid being the data processor. Yeah, okay. Uh, and, we, and, and, and it's hard to say, hey, synthesize your data, take care of your data, and by the way, send it to us mm -hmm. first. 
yes. so so that's why we are, we have started this in this way and just okay here's the technology use it try it out and and then we build something yeah, when you have figure out the value for you um yeah. but it's impressive how everybody is scared of of touching the data right now <laughs> I agree. I also sit with those uh, GDPR checklists that everyone has to go through. And as Theo said, like I don't even know if anyone knows why they're asking those questions, but they just have to do it, kind of. Yeah. So, and it's a lot about politics too. So, uh, if you can find your way around that, um, then trying to do so. I would say it's turned from politics to financial right now with the with the finance findings uh, the fines everybody's getting um, right now, yeah. and also the bad will I think it will have on on companies B two C companies if they suddenly will will have a lot of uh, uh, fines for break, breaching GDPR and not respecting the integrity etc. Definitely. Definitely. Does anyone else have anything else to um, to add to that point just before we move on? No. No. Perfect. Well, we have got time for sort of one more question. Um, so one of the additional questions that wanted to be asked. So how do I price my product if it if it hasn't existed yet? Or doesn't hasn't existed before. Um, so, if Matthias, if you'd like to um, go ahead and start us off with this one. Uh, well, we are talking with an insurance company that it might be that way that we can help them with their pricing strategies. Let's say two percent. Improve the pricing with two percent. That would be mean quite a lot of zeros in in their books. Uh, it's tempting to take tag along on that, but on the other hand, it's like uh, I, don't, I don't know. We have, so what I've landed in is basically a theory that say be cheap, and if the first customer say yes, double the price, uh, and then if they say yes, double the price again, and and then you finally have some sort of level of what they are expect, uh, expecting to pay or are prepared to pay. Um, the other one I was into that before, uh, that demanding on your first clients to actually help you evaluate the value that you bring them and also discuss with the, with, uh, with them, what would, what are they, even though you won't change that cheap price, but what would you have been prepared to pay? Um, so you go back to your cheap customers and ask, okay, what would you pay for this? Uh, how much could I ever charge you? Um, but as always, I didn't want that fight first. So the first one we priced too much and lost. They didn't went through with the project. That hurt. So then I just turned back to that strategy that be cheap and, and uh, win on, on the next uh, business instead. I don't know if you have another suggestion there. Pricing, I would say, is one of the uh, hardest uh, problems to solve when you start a business and uh, sell a, a product. So this approach, I remember when I asked a friend he, who uh, who worked at the venture capital firm, uh, so how do you price? I remember I asked that a few years ago and he said, um, 
if the if your customer is paying, then it's uh, not expensive enough. So he's very surprised. So that was his his answer. Uh, so which is actually what you're saying that you raise the price on, until they say not this is way too expensive. But uh, kidding aside, um, I mean, of course, you can uh, you can compare with competitors and see what their pricing is and what kind of I mean, if there are different features that they charge for. So that's definitely an easy way if there are any but if you're totally totally new um i think it will be a little bit uh, uh of an effort i wouldn't say it's a guessing game but you really need to do some kind of uh, uh market research and see if, if there is a way to for instance calculate the value that you provide for your customers it could be that you say okay look this is a contract for uh, six months and uh, uh, try to see if they can help you to understand what their return on investment uh, has been. And then you can, oh, look, actually you're uh, making a lot of money. I can raise uh, my prices. So having a more like dynamic pricing, uh, having a continuous uh, dialogue with your customers, that's how I would do it. Yeah, I think yeah. I have that dialogue with them, but not for raising the prices at their place, just for the next customer, because I think that they will not be as transparent if I say, OK, how much will you prepare to pay because I'm raising the price now. But I'm having that dialogue for collecting data to use for the next client. Mm -hmm. Well, I think then you can be more strategic and say, actually, I am, uh, which I think you are, you're interested to see uh, what value you provide. And uh, from the beginning, before you start, you measure, uh, you help them to measure the value that they get. Also to demonstrate for them, they can demonstrate for their managers uh, that uh, this was really worth investing and uh, you can help them with this evaluation. So be part of this evaluation. Yeah, I, I I totally agree there uh, with 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 Anthony. I think it's all everything is in the value prop, right? And and how how what what's the value you bring to the table? And for for some customers it can be a lot, for some some not, right? But it we I, I will I will always come back to this shoehorning strategy, because I, I I've seen so many startups having to do that, and they're the first I don't know how how many what what volume you need to have in your business to be successful, but. I, I would guess that you know a couple of hundred customers. You you need to twist and bend and tweak and you know whatever, right? Just to get them through the door, and then you can have another process of upselling and do all of that that things. But my personal feeling here is that it's there are no list price for the first X customers. It's it's a lot of just feeding them out and what value do you bring? And when you know when you have enough customers to say this is the value prop for all of them, then you can do the pricing. I agree. Like, don't put your price on your website ever. <laughs> in the early, <laughs> thing, someone from the team wanted to do so, and I was like, no, don't, please, don't do that, because we have no idea. We have no idea where we will end up on this. So, um, and we have so many like tailored specific cases right now. So it would be stupid to to put your price out there. Uh, to try before before putting it out there. But uh, but I agree with you, Andrew. Like, I did I did some A/B testing. I actually did it in the beginning. I did it during the same day in different meetings. So I had one meeting in the morning um, with a certain type of company and I was selling a specific price. 
uh, and they were just like nodding and saying like, okay, yeah, this is cool. And I was like, okay, that was too easy. So my next meeting, I was just doubling the price. And I was like, yeah, this is the price for the product. And they're like, yeah, okay, that's cool. I was like, okay, well, we can really <laughs> triple this up, you know, until I reached the stage where they were like, oh, is that a little bit expensive for this product? And I was like, mm, okay, now we're talking. So then I started to find my my level kind of to get an idea of what, what are they willing to pay here for this type of product. Uh, so I think it's worth trying and it's worth sort of discussing it with, with your potential customers. But I definitely agree with the fact that, you know, you, we would like to measure the value of it. And then it's also much easier to sort of uh, justify why your potential client should buy your product for sure. Yeah, and basically we are back to the to the perfect way is to have a webinar with the form with existing clients, what we sold, what we value we brought. Mm. Um, yeah. No, I think we've had some really, really great answers um, throughout the podcast here. Um, does anybody else have anything else to say just before we uh, finish up there? No, I must just Need say and get some, get some inspiration, get some good ideas and tips. Okay. So um, much appreciated.